And there's been lots of great studies done with fruit, high in fructose, but if anything, high consumption of fruit is linked with weight neutral or weight loss because it's a beneficial food. There's fiber and other nutrients. So when you focus on one nutrient, you do start demonizing other foods. And my big issue with this whole I quit sugar, demonize sugar movement is that fruit became part of the friendly fire. Right, that was, right. you know, don't have fruit that's going to you know, cause you to gain weight. You've got to limit how much fructose. Well, there's fructose and there's fructose. It's different, you know, a can of soft drink high in fructose is different to an apple. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And today joining me from Melbourne is Dr. Tim Crow. Hi, Tim. G'day, Nathan. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a great, a great to chat with you. My pleasure. It's great to finally meet you. I've been chatting for over 12, 18 months now trying to organize Congress. Um, but you've had your own very successful podcast. And I reached out to you recently to, to talk all things about sugar. Um, so before we dive into that, perhaps if you can give the uh, listeners a bit of a background on who you are and what you what you uh, specialize in. Sure, I'm a I'm a career academic nerd. I've spent my whole career in in research in medical research, uh, and most of that's been in the field of nutrition, um, mostly in an academic environment. Uh, but the last couple of years, I'm working more in in health communication. So I, I do a lot of uh, you know, health comms work, I, I podcast, I do a lot of work on social media, a lot of health professional education, the odd conference speaking uh, situation as well. And so I'll be speaking um, at the Metagenics Conference in uh, June of this year. Um, so I get to immerse in all the research of nutrition and then communicate it. So my base is, is a career researcher and I never get out of bed in the morning unless there's a randomized control trial that tells me it's safe <laughs> to do so. So that's my that's my bias. We all have biases and my bias yeah. is, is in the researcher, but that doesn't mean I know everything and the research is always right. But I'm coming from that perspective um, when I speak about, you know, whatever topic is the uh, the topic of the day. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and is there any area that, of nutrition that you're focused on or passionate about or it's just what's popular and needs clarification and explanation you think to the the public and the lay people excellent question so i would say based on what i do with my podcasting it's dealing with the topical issues in nutrition that that are fairly confusing and when there's a lot of conflicting voice Uh, there's probably not many areas i can't speak about Mm. Uh, so i i'm interested in all areas of nutrition and the advantage is when you have a big global view you can see how the pieces fit together rather than just have a myopic focus that you know, it's just this one little factor is the cause of obesity when you yes. can step back and go, okay, it's much more complex. I mean, nutrition is very seductive. It seems so simple. You know, just just cut out processed foods, uh, eat clean, eat fruits and veggies, and that, that's, you know, cure for everything. Well, it probably is. The fundamentals is like that, but it's it's a lot more complex around the edges than that. So I try and distill all of the noise around the edges to bring it back to those core sensible dietary recommendations. Sure. And you've probably seen a lot of things come and go over the years with your experience. And do you get surprised much these days? I suppose uh, it's getting more extreme, like with carnivore diets and things like that. No, I've been in this business for about thirty years. I've seen the fads come and go, and rather than fight them, I just roll with them because they just keep getting reinvented. They come in out of fashion, like <laughs> clothing fashion trends. The same with diet trends. So yeah, I don't worry about it too much. You know, no one is following a true keto diet 
to the letter of the law, you know, six months later, you know, apart from a very small percentage of people. Yeah. And that's the same with most more extreme dietary approaches. So I focus on the positives of dietary changes. You know, what, what positive things are they trying to do? Maybe debunk some of the crazy and find some sensible common ground, knowing that most people are fairly sensible and they will move yeah. on to sensible advice in the future and, you know, try different things because nutrition is individual. No matter what the science says, we all eat food and we are experts in our own nutrition. What foods agree mm. with us and what foods don't. And I don't tell people what they should and shouldn't eat. I give, well, here's, some, here's what the research says, you know, pick and choose what things can work for you in your own individual world. It's <laughs> really well said. So um, the, the topic we want to talk about today probably covers some of those areas, um, maybe a bit of uh, myth-busting, maybe putting into context, um, and that's all around sugar. Yeah. So it's something that I don't know, I've been monitoring for a, a long period of time, and you've probably seen online there's champions of, um, I, I suppose, zero tolerance of sugar, and people have made a name for themselves Absolutely. about quitting sugar. And, yep. Um, <laughs> yep. And, you know, the influencers and also messages out online. I had a quick search earlier about toxicity of sugar and there's a lot of claims around it. And yeah. um, when I've, over the years, like looked at the research, I've I've been surprised how, dare I say, it, pretty benign, like the, <laughs> the sugar seems to be, in my view, in terms of health outcomes. Not to, to say that it's healthy or beneficial, but yeah. um, I think there's a, like it's a spectrum or there's, you know, Shades of grey rather than zero tolerance. So I want to dive into some of the areas of sugar um, about some of the, the beliefs and misconceptions of what the research is saying. Then maybe even look at um, alternatives like artificial sweeteners because probably similar, there's there's strong views on either camp there. Very much are, yes. And then maybe um, the so what, like is it so bad that people are like so uh, strongly against sugar? Like what's is there any harm in that? So Yeah, okay. Um, so let's dive into it. So let's maybe just do a bit of a 101 on sugar. Um, it's often, obviously, the words thrown around. Um, interesting, I suppose, like there's sugar, but, you know, honey's not that dissimilar and there's other types of sugar. So what what is what are sugars chemically and what do they do in our bodies? Okay, so a little bit of sugar chemistry 101. Uh, when most people talk about sugar, they're probably talking about sucrose. You know, that's table sugar. That's what's added to a lot of foods. That's what you put in your coffee. And that is two molecules joined together. It's a glucose and a fructose molecule. So that's a sugar. But I use the word sugars because there are dozens of different types of sugars that we eat. But the main ones in our diet are sucrose. So that's glucose and fructose. There's milk sugar, which is lactose. And that's glucose and a galactose. We eat a little bit of maltose, which is two glucoses joined together. So they're all what we call disaccharides or two molecules. Then there are individual sugar units. So if you think about fruit, that's high in fructose. So sucrose contains fructose and glucose, but fructose also exists by itself. And you'll get that in fruit uh, as, as well as glucose. So they're the main ones that we eat. Now, for the average Australian, about half of the sugar they eat is naturally present in food. So that's going to come from milk and fruit. So we call that natural sugar, and but all sugar is natural anyway. But the other half of the sugar we eat is added by food manufacturers. So that's mostly going to be you know, sucrose and probably some fructose, not, not so much lactose. That just really exists in, in dairy products. Sure. So, But where the confusion comes is that when we talk about our blood sugar, what we're talking about is glucose. 
Mm. Now, if you got rid of glucose in your blood, you'd be dead in about two minutes. You'll go into a coma and you die. So any carbohydrate we eat, so that's starch as well, becomes glucose in our blood. And we need that fundamentally. And even some protein becomes glucose. So our blood sugar is glucose, but sugars in the diet are a very mixed bag of all these different chemicals that I've spoken about. So that's probably as much depth as I want to get into in the chemistry for today, but that's sure. That's the sure. fundamentals of sugars. Um, what about fructose? So obviously, yeah, the glucose um, goes in your blood and that's our main energy source. Yes. Um, so when it comes to sugars, often uh, the um, uh, fructose is, uh, I suppose, accused of having all these pathological effects. Yeah. So does that have... A different effect, like it goes to liver first and then has to be metabolized? Absolutely. So this has probably launched a lot of the fear campaign about sugar. So if we talk about fructose, it, it is metabolized differently. So um, our glucose is absorbed really quickly through a, um, active transport in the gut, and it can be distributed all throughout the body and metabolized all throughout the body because it's a, it's a sort of a universal fuel source. Yes. Fructose is absorbed what's by a process called um, facilitated diffusion, and it's, it's much slower. And it's also um, why if you give concentrated fruit juice to infants, they'll probably get diarrhea from it because they can't ah. absorb that fructose so quickly. So it takes longer. But in our body, we can only really metabolize fructose in the liver. And about half of that fructose we convert it to glucose, so it goes into the glucose pool. Um, a little bit into lactate, which can become glucose, and some of it can be made into triglycerides or a form of fat. So our liver is our central um, fat maker, fat metabolism um, organ. That is 100% correct biochemistry, but you can have a view on that to then uncover the secret to weight. You know, the cause of weight gain is from eating too much fructose. You absorb it, metabolize in the liver, turns to fat, you get fat, bang, sugar is a poison. And it's not quite like that because that's one one side of metabolism but it's true that's what happens to fructose right so yeah just to to clarify some of the mechanisms i think people claim that fructose is problematic is because it goes to the liver and you can either create triglycerides correct yep. um what about does it um does it not stimulate insulin secretion as um rapidly or as significantly as uh, glucose absolutely so if we look at um, insulin responses to fructose, they're almost flatline compared to glucose or even protein. Um, it, it will go up. And that's what insulin does. Um, even appetite hormones, so one of them is called leptin. Leptin helps um, control, make you feel full. If you have a large glucose load, your leptin levels go up and that feeds back into your hypothalamus to decrease appetite. Leptin doesn't really change on fructose. Right. Another hormone, ghrelin, which drives us to eat, goes down with glucose, right? but it's also unaffected by fructose. So you could look at that and go, wow, that's not so good. It, it, it points to fructose not being sensed by our body and potentially that allows overconsumption. So I'm talking yep. about potentially here. You've got the theory and you've got the reality of what clinical trials show, but it's completely correct. Now, if you look at um, glycemic index, uh, which your listeners will be very familiar with, People think about sugar as being, oh, it, it just shoot, makes your blood sugar skyrocket. It mm. doesn't. Sugar is actually a medium GI food. And the reason why is sucrose is half glucose, half fructose. Fructose has a very small effect on blood sugar. Pure glucose has a high effect. Combine them together, it actually falls in the middle. 
Right. And because fructose, its effect on on it has about the lowest GI of any carbohydrate, so it doesn't really register in our blood glucose. Hence, it doesn't yep. really register in insulin responses, ghrelin, and leptin. Yep. Sure. So, yeah. so this is all you know, fairly straightforward biochemistry. That's what happens. Yeah. 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 So I think some of the claims I read maybe cherry pick like these mechanistic studies or short-term acute feeding yes. on humans and it, it'll affect a, a certain hormone like leptin or ghrelin. Um, they, or my side, animal studies, where sometimes I think they seem like they give extraordinary amounts of, of fructose yes. or blue um, sugars. Correct. And the other piece is often association studies where they'll look at um, sugar consumption and the association between diseases where there is a, a bit of a signal. Um but then when we get to obviously clinical trials where the sort of rubber meets the road, that's where yeah. I find it interesting that, that the results are, are somewhat different. Um, I, I suppose just anything you want to say about those? those uh, your assessment is 100% correct. So when the clinical trials in humans, which is where the rubber hits the road, you don't see fructose doing all these horrible things of causing weight gain and causing people to overeat. You only really see weight gain with fructose in the, the um, situation of, overconsumption and we'll talk about this later mechanisms that could drive that but animal studies and observational studies tell one story but human intervention studies just don't support this so even though you can show in a lab in a single meal study that hormone levels such as insulin and leptin are unaffected in the real world at normal doses of fructose people would eat in their diet combined with other foods that doesn't seem to be an impact people don't overeat it doesn't yeah. cause them to overeat more. Yeah. So with these studies, um, they've often administered or prescribed, like from my take, there's been a, a lot of them, so there's up to meta-analysis levels yes. of um, providing or encouraging the consumption of quite high levels of refined sugars and straight fructose, as I understand, um, with the caveat that it's isocaloric, so they're not really going above and beyond their, their required energy levels. Um, so, yeah, and, and the results are... I suppose um, pretty well. There's the the neutral in a sense. is not really a signal that I can see. Do you want to expand on like the, the breadth of the research and and yeah the, the the methods there? Yep. So there's been several systematic reviews and meta analyses in this area, and we're talking about dozens and dozens of intervention studies. And you can just go to the bottom line conclusion that that sugar and and, and particularly fructose or high fructose corn syrup uh, doesn't cause you know weight gain if it's in the context of just substituting one carbohydrate for another, but keeping energy the same. I mean, that's sort of what you would expect. It doesn't create energy out of nowhere and cause weight gain. Yeah. So, and all of the styles show this. It's only when you give very high doses of fructose on top of a diet that's meeting energy needs that you do start seeing weight gain and increased triglycerides productions, but that's um, energy excess. Yeah, yeah. Now you could argue. Well, we'll talk about this later. But you could say that how sugar can promote overconsumption. That that's valid to say that. But metabolically, there's nothing magical about fructose that turns into fat and makes you fat. Right. And we can look at this because if you look at fruit, and there's been lots of great studies done with fruit high in fructose, but if anything, high consumption of fruit is linked with weight neutral or weight loss because it's a beneficial food. There's fiber and other nutrients. So when you focus on one nutrient you do start demonizing other foods. And my big issue with this whole I quit sugar, demonize sugar movement is that 
fruit became part of the friendly fire. Right, that was, right. you know, don't have fruit that's going to, you know, cause you to gain weight. You've got to limit how much fructose. Well, there's fructose and there's fructose. It's different, to, you know, a can of soft drink high in fructose is different to an apple. And intervention studies clearly show that there's a difference in um, the amount of calories we consume based on satiety of these, these foods. But in the end, it's calorie excess that drives weight gain and fatty liver and metabolic problems, not fructose per se. Yeah, sure. So often in those uh, observational studies, uh, my take is that, yeah, they're having the um, extra large soft drink with the Big Mac meal. So there's probably like, I don't know, 3,000 calories just in that meal. So to, um, yeah, I suppose pin it on sugar is probably... Yeah, and misrepresenting the what's actually happening and the the excessive caloric intake. Um, so just to rehash, I think the the meta analysis showed there was um, no differences in like fasting blood glucose, body weight, no. blood pressure, and all sort of the lipid panels. All of those are pretty much well. If you compare them to glucose, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. saying that glucose isn't. Well, if you eat any carbohydrate, eventually becomes glucose. Apart from you know most of fructose, but yeah. if you compare it to glucose. Which you, you know you can't demonize. That's you can't live without it. To fructose, it's the same. Same effect on body weight. Same effect on lipids. Um, even fatty liver. In in the context of a mm. you know a diet meeting your energy needs, energy excess. Absolutely. Then you start seeing increased triglyceride production and so on. So is it the the fructose that's doing that, or is it the factor in energy excess? Well, it's probably both of them. But you have to yeah, okay. cross that threshold first. Yeah, yeah. I want yeah. to touch on um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, yeah, fructose is often um, suggested to be the main culprit, but as you mentioned, is it, again, like a caloric issue? Um, I haven't looked at the studies recently, but I know in animal models, I think it, often there's other factors, maybe yes. a choline deficiency as well. Could Absolutely. Be yeah, you do. In animal models, you can see um, um, fatty liver with, with fructose, but in... Again, in, in in human studies, you just don't see it if it's meeting, if it's in the context of an isocaloric diet. Yeah. Um, okay. And the other one um, often cited is sugar is inflammatory. And again, there's been research and I think even a meta-analysis on inflammation like CRP. Um, yeah. What's what's your findings on this? Oh, well, the, yeah, the same thing. I mean, CRP yep. exists with all, the whole spectrum of metabolic syndrome, you know, obesity, central adiposity dyslipidemia, hypertension, so on. So CRP is always linked with those. Now, if, if fructose is not causing any you know, different effects on those markers, then it's not going to be causing a major change in, in inflama inflammatory markers either. But th our main measure of that is CRP, which is fairly, um, fairly non-sensitive, but it's a nice yeah. marker overall systemic inflammation. Sure. Yeah. All right. So metabolically, it seems like on par with glucose in a isocaloric environment. Um, another area there's often um, view, strong views about sugar is it's like an addictive um, substance and I think I've often been at conferences and they put up old slides of, um, it, you know, was it mice and they compare it to cocaine and sugar. I think there's oh, spiders. That, that, and old, that old study, yeah. Just the spider webs. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that it's like they're on an LSD trip or something when they're on sugar. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's thought to be addictive. I mean, first of all, I think um, – wouldn't mind your comments on food addiction per se, because that's sort of a bit of a, a contentious topic in absolutely, itself, isn't it? Absolutely. So this podcast isn't going to give a, a you know no. the, the final answer and if it's addictive or not. Um, so the word addiction gets thrown around all the time in our society. You know, um, 
if you go without food for a day, you'll be craving food. Does that mean you're addicted to food? No, it's just inherent physiologic need. You know, you're starving, you need food. Um, I like going for a walk on sunny days. Does that mean I'm addicted to going for walks on sunny days? No, I find it pleasurable. So we have inherent strong physiologic drivers and we have pleasurable things we like doing and none of those are addictions. The word addiction though has no you know, um, firm meaning in the literature. There's no one accepted definition, but typically it will be, it'll be chronic. It will involve a, a relapsing brain disease that's characterized by some form of compulsive uh, drug-seeking use, and drug can be, you know, food or gambling, regardless of unhealthy consequences. But there's no food addiction in the DSM-5 handbook, so that's the um, right. statistical manual for psych- psychological illnesses. But the interesting thing about food addiction, it, it, there's a strong overlap between f- what people consider food addiction and binge eating disorder. And that starts to unpack a few little clues to here. When people say they're addicted to sugar or they're right. addicted to food, it could also be a marker of an underlying um, eating disorder as well. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, but there are true differences in, in brain responses there is something going on with i'm not going to say sugar but food because it's typically not the sugar i don't know many people that are addicted to eating fruit but that's pure sugar you know, yeah, yeah yeah it's typically what we consider hyper palatable high sugar high fat or savory food high in salt think potato chips that we're addicted to so it's the hyper palatability that's pleasurable. And that certainly can be seen in um, brain changes, not just dopamine, which is part of our reward system. Um, You can also see changes in um, uh, um, production of BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic. Thank you for that. Neurotrophic factor. So that's involved in neuronal um, stimulation, as well as there's opioid effects, and even affects in our prefrontal cortex. So I'm yeah, getting right. some of my area of expertise here, so I'll stop yeah. there. Okay. Uh, but yeah. there is there's a real thing. You can observe brain changes with hyperpalatable food. I always say that word because you don't see it with broccoli or you don't see it with you know legumes. It's these yeah. high yeah. sugar, high fat, not just pure sugar. So there is merit to this sugar addiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating area. Yeah. yeah. We could spend hours talking about that. Um, so whilst up in the brain, the other, another area that's often, um, sugars, I suppose, accused of contributing to is like hyperactivity or even ADHD. Oh, yes. And I think you had a a dedicated podcast on this a little while ago. I did. I've covered this a few times and this is actually a really easy one because this is absolutely, totally and utterly busted as a myth. (laughs) <laughs> uh, completely there's no there's no debate here if we're talking about sugar and hyperactivity first of all hyperactivity you, you can't do a blood test on it you, you have to observe behavior and, and rank it and carry characterize so you need an observer now the only way to do true trials to see if sugar makes kids hyperactive is that you you give the kids either sugar or a non-sugar substitute and the observers don't know what the kids have been given that, that's the only clinical trial that's valid. And there's been 16 of them done. And the right. conclusion is clear cut. You cannot tell the difference between kids given sugar and not sugar. It is only when researchers intentionally introduce bias into these experiments and they get parents involved and they tell the parents their little kid was given sugar, the parents will rate their behavior as more hyperactive, even if 
they were given a non-sugar substitute. So right. parents were lied to. So it's, the, it's an observer bias that we see in hyperactivity. There is no direct link for sugar, and nor should there be. There's no physiologic reason why glucose and fructose should cause a behavior change. And it can't because it sends your blood sugar skyrocketing because it's a medium mm -hmm. GI of food. True. So yeah. it's it's really been busted. In fact, there hasn't been a clinical trial in over a decade done, or over twenty years, because it's just yeah, right. It's a waste yeah. of time. Research is doing yeah. it's, it's the results <laughs> um, are that clear. It's, it's now, very rare that uh, uh, an issue is almost settled in nutrition. I would say it is, but people will, will swear by it because where kids can seem hyperactive and eating sugar is environments, perhaps as parties and playgrounds, and they're running around like maniacs. That's yeah. you know, there is validity to that observation, but purely from the science. Uh, it doesn't make anyone hyperactive. It doesn't mean that ingredients in the food, you know, there is a little bit of merit to that, you know, the red colouring. Right. And it isn't. That can yeah, trigger off some kids, but it's it's not the it's not the yeah. sugar. That doesn't mean you should be giving kids loads of sugar, but it doesn't make kids hyper. Yeah. There you go. I've been very as clear cut as I get in the world of nutrition, and this is one area that's yeah, yeah. It's damning. That that myth is is busted, gone, dead, cremated, yeah. <laughs> buried. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so you've looked at sugar now, and as you mentioned um, in those trials with the kids, they gave them, gave them like alternatives. So I want to turn our attention now to non-nutritional sweeteners or artificial, even natural sweeteners. Those low or low or no caloric sweeteners that people use to obviously keep the calories lower than using uh, traditional sugar. And that's probably got as many controversies. And there was some validity to the controversy as well. Yeah, and it's a yeah. very emot emotive area. So we've probably covered all the – like we eat too much sugar, added sugar, we should eat less of it. We, we all fully agree on that, even though we can show that it's probably not as much of a demon as it's de been given for food times mm. that were not good for us. And we've always yeah, yeah. had recommendations to eat less sugar. Yeah, it's a good point. This yeah. podcast is about sort of myth-busting some of the scare campaigns that have yeah, been yeah. thrown around about fructose. Yeah. So, um, I forgot to mention early on, uh, there is this Australian paradox, isn't there, that in the last, is it 20 years? There's actually been a decline in sugar intake. Yet, absolutely. Like a, absolutely. Uh, so in Australia, using four different types of dietary assessment, either consumption at a um, population level or dietary surveys, sugar consumption has been declining. And in 13 other Western countries showing the same trends. So worldwide, we are seeing a small decline in sugar consumption. And a lot of that is from the sugar sweetened beverages as well. Right. And they are clearly linked with weight gain. It's, it's really yeah. not so yeah. much sugar. If, if you put them in a soft drink, for whatever the reason, they clearly stand out as a, I'm not saying a smoking gun, but one clear dietary factor you can link to weight gain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but worldwide sugar consumption is declining. So we can't always blame it on it's our sugar consumption that's caused everybody to become overweight and um, yeah, obese. Yeah. But our sugar consumption is still much higher than what's recommended. Yeah, yeah, it's good that yeah. we point it out. Like, even though we might be dispelling some of the myths and certainly not advocating yeah. for an increase. This is, not a, this is not a sugar industry sponsored podcast. We eat yeah. too much of it. The food's high and are bad for us. We should eat much less of it. But yeah, that's a very clear message I want to get through in this podcast. This is not exonerating sugar, but it's just sort of pulling it back a little bit that it doesn't mean no sugar. You can enjoy a bit of sugar in your diet and it's not going to cause instant weight gain and uh, inflammation in your body in the context of a healthy diet that's meeting your energy needs. Sugar is perfectly fine to include you know, some if you want. But if you want to go zero sugar, you know, try it, but that can be 
you know, that can be just as extreme. That can mean depriving mm. yourself of a lot of pleasurable foods. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, artificial sweeteners, um, back to that, maybe just broadly outline some of the, the common ones and sure. what, what they contain. Okay, so a couple of the common ones used in Australia, one of them is, is sucralose, and that's made from sucrose. You, you make a few chemical changes to it. Um, Splendor is one of the, the brand names for sucralose, and it's 600 times sweeter than sugar. So you only need a, you know, a tiny, tiny amount of it. Um, I'll sort of do them each quickly and you can come back to ones of interest. Then we have aspartame, that's NutraSweet. That is two amino acids joined together. Uh, that is phenylalanine and aspartic acid. Um, it's about 200 times sweeter than, than sucrose, so you only need tiny amounts of it. Uh, you'll find that in, in so, a lot of soft drinks, you will use NutraSweet because it's, right. it's not very heat stable. Where so it's natural for lower temperature cooking or for soft drinks, so you'll find mm. it in there. Uh, it's one of the most common ones used in the world. It's one of the most well studied as well. There's been hundreds of studies on it showing yeah. how how safe it is. It's been, it's been approved by regulatory bodies all around the world. Another one is saccharin, a little bit old school. That's been around for over a hundred years. Um, wow! And that's one of the first artificial sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners approved. Um, it's considered very safe for people with diabetes, um, and, and again, it's fairly similar to the other sweeteners. And the newcomer is stevia, which is more the, the natural, the natural sweeteners. It comes from a plant grown in South America. Uh, it's about two hundred to three hundred times sweeter than sugar than, than sucrose, so you only need a small amounts of it. Uh, and like the other ones, all of these I mentioned, none of them affect your blood sugar. Right, and maybe f with only one or two studies, perhaps potentially with sucralose, none of them affect insulin either, as you'd expect. You know, there's nothing in them of, of substance. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. all so very neutral. They don't have calories or carbohydrates to stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin. Um, so, just take a step back. Yeah, a couple of things. There's yeah, there's the weight. I think there's things on the appetite, um, and there was early concerns about as a carcinogen and you covered off safely um earlier but maybe just if we can go back over that like what's the research show on safety okay all of these sweeteners have been studied studied and studied they've all been scrutinized like no other food additive you've been scrutinized and they're all considered incredibly safe to be using even at very high consumptions the recommended or the highest dose recommended is set at a level 100 times lower where no effect has been seen in animal models. Right. And apart from you know, one or two very obscure rat studies given in massive amounts, you just don't find any link with cancer and all these sorts of other diseases. So they belong in the world of internet scare campaigns. doesn't <laughs> mean that they can't do it, just the research that can't find those yep, types of associations. Sure. So yep. really they're given a clean bill of health when it comes to cancer. They don't affect hormone levels such as insulin. Uh, and also your blood glucose and body weight, and we guess we'll touch on this, in human intervention trials, they're reasonably favourable, either neutral or a slight decrease in body weight yeah, right. if used as they're meant to be used. Uh, yeah, yeah. Observational studies paint a different story. And why could that be? <laughs> <laughs> Is that because they have the, the McDonald's and the Diet Coke? <sighs> so who are the people most likely to use artificial sweeteners? Those be who want to lose weight and now even mm. these studies can try and correct that they always can't do a perfect job so yeah yeah there's associations between artificial sweeteners and potentially weight but in human studies at, at doses normally eaten in a normal diet 
not just given huge amounts in rats or in a lab yep. study. If anything, you see a small benefit for weight loss. It's nothing spectacular, but they're not yep. causing you to crave sugar and overeat and gain weight. Sure. Um, but, yeah, so if we compare, as you mentioned earlier, there there seems to be a signal in the research with sugar-sweetened beverages for weight gain. Yes. So head-to-head, the, the evidence is pretty clear then that maybe the, the diet version is probably more favorable for body composition. I always say this to people. If you are, if you're a soft drink addict, I use the word addict there, you do drink yeah. lots of um, Coke or Fanta or whatever brand you want to use and you switch to a diet version, the research says that will be slightly in your favor. But I always think these drinks may be a gateway, you know, to move it, then mm. moving to something else. You know, I'm not promoting them as a long-term, there's nothing, there's no health benefits of these drinks. They're, yeah. they're just, they just don't contain any sugar. I'm not advocating that they're wonderful for things to have. But if you use them as they're meant to, to help reduce how much added sugar you're having, particularly from sugar-sweetened uh, beverages, so soft drink, then they have a role to play. But they're not going to cause you to lose 20 or 30 kilograms mm. just because you yep. have your diet cake and your, and your McDonald's hamburger. That's, that's the best example. So they're really just, I consider them a stepping stone. Um, but the research says you shouldn't be concerned they're going to throw out all of your you know, your insulin and they're not going to, they're, they're going to cause you to gain weight that doesn't seem to be the case and any effect yes. on appetite is seen in in single meal lab studies yeah. when you move into the real world where we just don't have a diet drink we eat a normal diet any effects on appetite are just washed out completely right so those um yeah they've done like neuroimaging studies where they administer a, a diet soft drink perhaps and and look at MRI of the brain region. And they're fascinating. They're really fascinating studies. They're great to do. But then you need yep. to then apply that to the real world and you just you don't see it happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, one emerging area which is interesting, um, there was one interesting study um, from a researcher I love following, Aran Segal, over in Israel yes. a couple of years ago, on the potential adverse effects on the microbiome and there's yeah. like responders and non-responders. There's yeah. been a bit of... Um, research around artificial sweeteners on potentially having detrimental effects on the microbiome, which then may affect metabolic health. Um, yes. Yeah. Can you give a bit of a summary in where, where the research is heading there? This is this is an area I keep a close eye on because it's interesting. You know, it, it's interesting what we're seeing at a very early stage that some of these, but seems to be sucralose, could be having a detrimental effect on our gut microbiome. The other ones seem to be pretty pretty. You know safe they don't really cause right. many changes so there, there may be something going on but the results are very mixed and also how do you assess it it's been detrimental you know anything you eat will change your gut microbiome within mm-hmm. 24 hours if you go from a junk food diet to a healthy foods your, your gut microbiome will change but the, we are seeing some changes and we don't know what the long-term consequences on health could be from long-term use of these sweeteners so it's it's a very um, pertinent point to raise and as a red flag that there could be gut microbiome issues from artificial sweetness. So we can't give them a complete clean bill of health. But again, I come back to that these products are not meant to be used as health foods. They're not, they're just mm. a substitute in your diet that may help improve it for a period of time as you wean off all of your highly hyperpalatable high sugar foods. That's where they're useful. Yeah. But it's a, a research area that I, I do keep a look at. But it's not clear cut. So overall, you'd say it's maybe potentially, but the implications of that are really unknown. So for that, we'll need long-term studies, and we're not going to get them from randomized controlled trials. We'll have to get them from observational studies, and that has right. its own inherent yeah, flaws true. with it. Yeah. Interesting. 
All right. So yeah, you mentioned earlier. Um, so okay, so sugar maybe isn't that problematic. That we should obviously not going in excess. But what is is there a downside to having sort of zero tolerance to sugar? Um, I mean, maybe financially. One of the things that I think of is often people will quit sugar, quote unquote, but then yeah. you know, use something some natural, organic, you know, Absolutely. whole food. Yeah. Um, alternative sweetener just probably cost 10 times the amount and you can have just as much. Um, is, and there's also anything about like rigidity and having um, being very, you know, rigid and, and extreme in your diet. Is there a downside to that? Um, do people sometimes, you know, once they once the damn wall breaks and they can overconsume, just wondering a couple of pieces like alternatives um, and then yeah, what's the cost of, of avoiding sugar? Yeah, so I mean that's a really it's a really good question to, to finish up on because we know that really extreme dietary restriction can work for some people, but that also has its own problems for others. When as you use the example, when the dam breaks, it can cause a whole lot of other consequences when they sort of revert back to previous behavior. So my issues are that first of all, it creates an unhealthy focus on food. You know, the whole high I quit sugar movement demonized healthy fruit as part of the consequences, but also uh, fronted up all of these healthy fruit uh, sugar substitutes such as rice malt syrup because it's not sugar. Mm. That's crazy. That's sugar. You know, all these things were, were called uh, substitutes, but they were just pure sugar. So for the consumer, they probably didn't appreciate those sorts of things. So you're just yeah. switching them from one drug. I'm using that word for students, yeah, like, yeah. you know, sucrose to another form of sugar. And that's none of that is, is healthy. The other thing, of course, is that the whole, um, if you become, if sugar becomes the ultimate demon, food industry will do what food industry does and respond to that. So we've already seen this with the low fat era. Mm. And God, that's, that's gone by. So we had all of these low fat products produced that were still highly processed. It contained a lot of sugar and other forms of carbohydrate to replace fat. If the focus just becomes on added sugar, food industry will reformulate with other things that may be just as bad for us. Right. So if you're eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, legumes, lean meats, dairy foods, if you choose to have them, you're not going to be eating hardly any added sugar. It's when you eat the discretionary food, you're having a lot of it. So the issue with a very myopic view on sugar being bad for you is it creates unneeded dietary restriction. It takes some of the pleasure out of eating, you know. A life without cake makes me a little bit sad to, to think. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, there can be unintended consequences if you have this distorted view of reality that I'm not having sugar because it's bad for me, but I'm going to fill up all my cakes with rice malt syrup because that's not yeah. sugar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, question with that notice, uh, is there any benefits in sugar taxing? I, I haven't really looked in this before, but I know there's some that really campaign hard that taxing it and Whilst a lot of it sort of makes sense to me, I'm also a little bit cynical. Like, yeah, as you mentioned, can will the food industry just sort of work their way around it, or yeah. people still pay for it anyway? It's a really good question. So I'm fairly ambivalent about it. Uh, where it's been in countries, it's been trialed and evaluated. It, it's shown to, to decrease sugar sweetened beverage consumption, soft drink consumption. Mm -hmm. That's where you target it because clearly you can look at soft drinks. They stand out from the rest of food in our food supply as something that has no nutritional merit and is linked with weight gain. So you add a tax, people decrease consumption. But we're already seeing this without a tax. Even in Australia, we're seeing a big decline in soft drink sales. You look at Coca-Cola, Amatil, you know, the, the, and PepsiCo, their sales are declining. So they move into other categories. So we have the, the flavoured mineral waters and, and the diet versions. So what happens is there's a shift from one product into another 
So it's already happening organically. But mm. a tax works because it, it increases the, the pain point for price and it moves consumers to other products. It's just one little lever in a very complex environment that we live in that impacts upon an individual and, and their own personal food choices for what they eat. So why we focus on a sugar tax because you can just identify one product mm. very clearly. Mm and go for it whereas a whole in food environment is much harder to regulate so i'm fairly neutral okay yeah i'm on it cool all right well we'll wrap up in a moment um so another question sort of without notice one thing that struck me today is your ability to you've obviously looked at this for a a long period of time and i i suppose you don't really become an expert without doing the the hours and effort but there's some like um heuristics or or advice you give about like people assessing information like you've mentioned like you know they've been short-term studies they're mechanistic they're observational um there's clickbait headlines how do you sort of work through a topic have you got any advice for people because you know um we're all exposed to all these sensational claims and how do you you know uh, assess them okay so the the first or the one option is you spend years in a university doing research evaluating research all day so you can pretty much go through it and understand the the good and the bad. That's not for everybody. The alternative is that you can put a case forward for any nutrient being harmful or beneficial for you based upon what research you cite for it. And that's what I issue with some of the I quit sugar movement, that they just cherry pick research to suit their agenda. And you can find research to show how harmful sugar is. But when you look at the whole research field, it paints a different picture. So my advice is if you look at research, don't look at an individual study. That's interesting. But if you can look, find things, systematic reviews or meta-analyses, these are really common in all areas of nutrition now. There's a big, big push to do these. Use those sorts of sources to help formulate your views on the topic. So if you've got a question about sugar and hyperactivity or sugar and weight gain, you can put that into Google and type meta-analysis or systematic reviews, and you'll actually get some of those studies actually on Google pretty quickly. Give a lot more weighting to those than just one individual study done in rats or humans they're they're interesting but they only give a very small snapshot Mm. so that's probably the best place just for a quick look otherwise you you, you'd be selective about the people that you you get information from so yeah i mean everybody has a bias and agenda i've got a bias because i'm a career scientist and yeah yeah. you know i'm open about that i don't have the ultimate truth but i try and present as the research into in its entirety and make some sensible conclusions from that and things are never as extreme as what they seem as in the story from sugar. But yeah, on the, yeah, the yeah. website, the message is always the same, to just eat less processed foods and eat more healthy foods. And that's where all roads point in nutrition. Exactly. Well said. Thank you. All right. Um, so before we wrap up, maybe we can just briefly discuss, you're going to speak at Congress this year to change gears completely or, or maybe not so much. Um, so you're going to speak at Congress 2021. Uh, you've got a couple topics. Do you want to quickly discuss what you'll Describing yeah, and thank you. Uh, two topics that are very close to me. My most of my career has been either um, in a research perspective or as a dietitian over 20 years ago, I worked in the area of cancer. So I'm speaking about the role of diet and lifestyle in cancer prevention as one topic. So that's you know all of the things that we know can help reduce a person's risk of cancer. And the spoiler alert, the big six uh, it's going to be um, diet, body weight exercise, alcohol, smoking, and sun. They're the the big six. Um, Forget about all the other things you read about. That's where most of it lies. I've given my whole talk away in that that (laughs) thing. So talking about lifestyle and prevention. And the other one is actually diet, particularly antioxidants in during cancer. Can Can they antioxidants prevent cancer? And what's their role once someone has cancer? 
So getting mm. much more in the in the therapeutic role of um, high dose antioxidants and what we yeah. can taste, what the literature tells us about that, and that's a much more mixed, nuanced story to talk about that. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. It, as you said, very mixed, um, whether it's prevention, during treatment, after treatment, um, what type of antioxidants, etc. So, yeah, that's um, and it's a controversial area, which I think practitioners are often really um, anxious about treating patients, whether it's diet or um, you know herbal extracts or maybe straight antioxidants. So there's a lot of understandably hesitancy. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to you to add some clarity into that area. Well, Tim, it's been a pleasure to, to finally meet and, um, yeah, talk about all things sugar and, and artificial sweeteners, et cetera. Um, so any closing remarks? I think you've, you've captured it really well, but any sort of final words on, on sugar? Oh, God, I think I've got my key message in there many times today. Yeah. You know, have a little bit of sugar. It's not going to kill you, but focus on what broad dietary guidelines are recommended for decades, you know, a healthy diet. And if you want to have a little bit of added sugar, go for it. Um, don't don't sweat too much on the sweet stuff. Have a bit in your coffee if you like it, but uh, it's not as much of a demon as we're led to believe. But also, it's not a health food. There's a little bit. There's a sensible middle ground between the two. Who would yeah, have thought? Yeah. But that doesn't sell books or, right. or online right. programs. <laughs> I might have my cup of tea with two sugars now. <laughs> um, great, great, nice to meet you. As I said, thanks for your time. Really appreciate uh, your hard work. Oh, um. Plug your own podcast. podcast my podcast, Thinking Nutrition. You'll find it wherever you get your podcast. Um, check it out. I cover all of the topical things in nutrition. Guaranteed to be in 10 or 15 minutes and you're done each week for a topic. So um, check out my yep. podcast. That'd be great. You launched that uh, about a year ago? So just before the pandemic started. So I started in January of 2020. And I've yep. talked to weekly episodes since then. Yeah, and it's going well. That's, uh, I think it's number two on the Apple podcast for nutrition. So it's, there's a lot say, of people yeah. listening to it, which is great. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah I, love, I love doing it. And there's no, no products being sold to you, no online programs, no books. It's just purely about nutrition science and what it means for you based upon all the, the topical issues in nutrition. Yeah, they're great little um, snapshots. And I like how you put the, the links to research in the show notes as well, which we'll try and do for this one. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Tim. Well, um, and look forward to seeing you in person in a few months. Wonderful. Thanks, Nathan. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.